I don't know how many sermons I've ever preached, uh, a bunch, let's just say, hundreds, certainly, maybe thousands. And every time someone with a real gift for coming down concisely about the nature of the story and the text and then shares it with children and does a great job, I've seen that over and over and over again. If you don't get anything out of anything that I might say, go back to Aaron, back up on the tape and go back to Aaron and listen in with the children because uh, it was wonderful. And the fact that uh, he's a professional magician, that doesn't hurt. I have no cards, I have no tricks, nothing. Okay, our text today comes from the Gospel of Luke and Luke is known for capturing some of these stories. They're parables. A parable is a story that's laid down alongside another one. So you're actually getting a chance to think about the real story, which is life, but you're thinking about it concretely through the beauty of a story. And we we perk up and listen to stories. And so it's a story that's laid down alongside real life. Here it is, Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, a lawyer, we would say. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? You're the lawyer, what do you read there? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to vindicate himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus took out a deck of cards and played played a little card game with him. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. If you're there, uh, if you've ever been there, Jerusalem is up on the mountain. And you can look, if you look far enough, you can look down to the Dead Sea. And along the way is Jericho, one of the oldest places on the face of the earth. A man was going down this path from Jerusalem down to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him beat him and took off, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road too, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He just sort of skirted around him. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side too. But a Samaritan... A half-breed Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating him with oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? 
And the man said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Wow, what a great story. I love the stories of Luke, and he brings together the teachings of Jesus in a way in which we can all listen to them and listen in on the conversation. When the best, the list of the best books of the last hundred years or so were drawn, Cormac McCarthy, one of my favorite authors, showed up for his book, The Road. I'm going to bet you haven't read The Road. Maybe you didn't even see the movie. The movie came. I see that hand. It's a book the critics absolutely raved about. It was in most of the top ten lists. And it's really a surprising choice because while the critics were raving about it, most of us were shirking back in fear. It is a fearful book. It is a book that will make you think long and hard about the nature of human beings. Undoubtedly, I think The Road may, may have been the most despairing book I've ever read. And it stands as a book I cautiously recommend to you. Are you hearing the disclaimer? I cautiously recommend to you if you think you're tough enough to read it. How's that for a review? The road is about a nameless man and his nameless son who are living in the aftermath of some god-awful post-apocalyptic time when most citizens have already died and all that's left of civilization is run amok by bandits and gangs of men who travel the road looking for victims that they can exploit. When I see the video of what's happening in the Ukraine, my mind wanders over here to the road because this is what's left of the world after the apocalypse has come. The man and his son are travelers on that road, the same road that the uh, gangs of men are on, and they're vulnerable except for the father's wonderful sense of survival and the skills that he brings to surviving. And together, the father keeps hope alive with his son by using this phrase. He, and he, he keeps hope going with his son by saying, we're carrying the fire. Remember, no matter what others are doing, we are carrying the fire. And this phrase and this image, this metaphor is a wonderful sense of, we have not given up, he says. It's a rich euphemism for uncertain hope and self-dignity, and maybe better times. All of us live on the road whenever we take a wrong turn or we travel to the far country. Jesus' stories are all about that. Sometimes the perilous road runs through school campuses where bullies pick on weaker kids in a culture of the strong bullying the weak simply because they can. They roam the school parking lots and the locker rooms the hallways, they huddle menacingly in the hallways where they make a living hell out of a parent's sweet question. How did it go at school today, honey? The perilous road can also run down the middle of the street where you live, your block, where no one speaks to one another or bothers to get to know their neighbor. The perilous road can run through the management of a large corporation where 
teams, you know, functional teams, eat up other teams for a living in this trying to survive and to excel. Or the perilous road can also run right through the gossiping habits of a church that picks apart those who unknowingly enter. They don't even know why they're there, and they come in, and, and yet the gossipers in the church can just pick them like, like carrion, and, and they tear them apart, unaware that the criticism of the gossipers is going on even before they have a chance to tell anyone their names. This Jesus story is about one person in need and three unwitting persons who are drawn into the drama of helping simply out of chance. They happen to be on the same road at the same time. That's all that has happened. We don't know why they're there, but they're there as life happens. They didn't set out on the journey to see if they could find someone to help. That's not why they're on the road. They're not there at all. They simply ran across the plight of a poor man, a victim, because the circumstances of their trip led them into this encounter. You know how things come together in life. They just do. You take, take a left instead of a right, and something over here happens. It's just the way life happens. Call it a fluke, if you wish, or call it fate. Maybe it's fate. I'm going to do a thing with the Friendship Club on the Gospel of Luck. Is it luck or bad luck? What is it? They met up with this broken and beaten man because they happened to be on the road together. Jesus took the quizzing of the professor of the law and turned it into a morality play about mercy. The legalist asked the hard questions, and Jesus turned the tables on him and made him answer his own questions. It was brilliant. Jesus seemed to understand the fact that the questions we ask are often more about us than they are about the question itself. They are as loud about who we are and what we think and what our opinions are as they are about the one being questioned. It's really not about the one being questioned. And ever the teacher, here's what Jesus said to him. What do you think? I love that. I absolutely love the way Jesus handled the complexity of the question by refusing to deal with the complexities, but instead spin the table around so that the one asking the question has to deal with their own question. A sidebar, uh, this story is not really about our questions or our belief. It's not about that. It's about how we live. This story is not about theology. It's not about belief. It's about ethics. It's about what do you do with the crossroads in your life. It's, about, it's not about orthodoxy, which we would call right belief. It's about orth, orthopraxy, about the way you live your life, the practice of your life. At least in Jesus' thinking, if right belief doesn't stay connected to how we live, something vital is missing. Jesus makes that connection for us. It's not so, about, so much about the theology that you hold or the statements of faith. It's about what you do in those moments when it really counts. So Jesus told this story in answer to the man's question, who is my neighbor? And it's at this point the story takes a really decidedly wicked 
turn, because Jesus does turn the tables. Uh, I'm adding in an editorial comment about the smug lawyer. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, maybe it doesn't matter. This is not a story about his quest to determine right belief. I think we read that into the text. I think we're right to read that into the text. This is not about getting the answers right. It's not about determining whether your theology is as good as my theology, and we do that with one another, as it's commonly played out. It's almost like it's a sport that we have in the hallways and in the classrooms. Maybe the focus of the story, though, doesn't really center in on the helpers at all, that we've always attached meaning to the three gentlemen who walked by. Maybe it's about the one who is lying bloody on the road. I get this from Robert Capon, an Episcopal priest who's now deceased, has a wonderful uh, reading of Scripture that most of us don't get in seminary. It's It's lively and it's full of images, and he says this story, the interpretation of this story can be reversed from the characters that we see on the stage. We, our eyes get focused on these three people who walk by, these three men who walk by and only one of them acts. Capon sees the central character of the story, he reduces it down to this, as the one beaten by the robbers, the victim, we would say. And he does that by seeing this person as a Christ figure who enters a world of danger. And in that light, we might consider renaming the parable as some have done, the man who fell among thieves. We could put a new label on it, a new title on it, the man who fell among thieves. And by doing that, we begin to see the story in a different light. This man was hiking down the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. I've mentioned that. It was widely known to be a dangerous stretch of road. Wanda and I lived in San Antonio for six years, and we loved it, every bit of it. But there were places in town I would not go to at night for nothing. Uh, I might drive my car through some of these areas on my way to the minor league baseball stadium or a good restaurant. San Antonio is a great place for a restaurant. But the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was loaded with bad characters. And the road itself was a downward spiral of a trail that descended from Jerusalem to one of the oldest cities on the face of the earth, down in the valley that was carved by the River Jordan as it flowed slowly to the world's deepest sinkhole the Dead Sea. Anyone with half a brain knew that you didn't take this road by yourself. I didn't use the word fool, but I could have. It was foolish to do that, to take this road. It's not all that far. I mean, you can walk it, it's downhill, but it winds back and forth and there's so many places where robbers can be. It was like walking into a war zone. Like, walk, like taking a walk in all of those places that we're afraid to take a walk in. And so we might ask, if this is the God figure, if this is the Christ figure of this story, what's a God like 
hours doing in a neighborhood like this? My mother would ask that question. What are you thinking about? And Paul the Apostle claimed, for our sakes God became poor. That's an amazing, very brief summation. Theologians have given that a name, calling it the divine impoverishment. That Jesus would take on, you know, the incarnation. He took on human flesh. He stepped onto the stage of history and became a part of the large story going on. There's a movement from safety and security of God's power and sovereignty to the vulnerability of incarnation. God became vulnerable, arms outstretched, willing to be beaten, killed, and crucified. That's the story in the Gospels of our Jesus. This story is not, though, about just being nice. You can overread this and assume that the two first guys were not nice. Maybe they weren't trying to prove their goodness in this story, and they didn't. Maybe we crack open the door, and Robert Capon is the one who opens this door for us to to a deeper understanding to see how Jesus entered into human history as Christ, and as Christ himself in every moment in the midst of every human situation. He fully engaged life. The Samaritan outcast picks up the wounded God outcast and did all he could to absorb the Christ figure's pain and suffering. He did everything you would hope someone would do to stop and render aid. The Samaritan is a genetic mistake. He's a half-breed. He's not this, he's not that. Not quite Jew, not quite Gentile. He's neither one. He's banished to the edges of the two worlds and rejected by both. Not too far from this little path that is so difficult, there's a section of, of geography where the Samaritans lived. And Jews would not walk through it. They would walk around it in order to get from A to Z. They would walk around it so they didn't have to go through the Samaritan neighborhood. These other two gentlemen are Jewish travelers who claim to have a special uh, place, uh, relationship with God, but not enough of the mercy of God to stop and get involved. And Capon stretches the realms of our thinking by pushing us to think about religion apart from the niceties of a form of faith that rewards niceness and punishes our not-niceness. This is a child's view of the way the world works, that in your faith you're just to be nice, and if you're not, you're not nice. And to simplify things in that kind of way is very simple. It's very childlike. He wants us to understand that Jesus didn't institute a religion comprised merely of behavioral modification, if you'll just be a better person. But instead, he wants to introduce us to renewal and transformation. So the questioner uh, in this story is us. The lawyer who comes to Jesus, that's us. Those who prefer to explore the limitations of love rather than seeking to live out the generosity of God 
if there's just, mm, you know, how much do I have to do in order to be okay in this moment? How much, how little can I do and get away with it and still be counted as a decent human being? We know the bare minimum necessary to keep us safe in God's kingdom. We're not willing to bend over and touch the guy, don't you know? But we need to know that what it is that will get us inside of God's good graces with the minimum of effort and personal expense. What we miss in that kind of living is the exploration of mercy, both for others and for ourselves. And so Jesus turns to us all when we ask how little is necessary for the salvation of our souls and Jesus turns the question on its head and says, what do you think? Re- refusing to answer the simplistic question, refusing to get caught up in that, and instead pushing it back to us and saying, what do you think about that? The road runs through our neighborhoods and our schools and our lives. Who is our neighbor is the question the confused young lawyer asked. And the story that Jesus told, this parable that he told, continues to haunt us every time we come across the figure of Jesus broken and bleeding on the side of the road. Friends, if the peaceable kingdom of God ever takes root in our world, it must first take root in our lives. May it be so, Lord. May it be so. Amen.